Well, good morning. Morning. Welcome to our Sunday School class. You'll notice that today I have given you three pages of notes. Wow, I have given you a lot of notes today. It is completely okay if we do not get through all three pages of these notes. Uh, I will attempt to get through the first three verses of Philemon in this lecture. If it spills into next week, so be it. But there's a lot of cool stuff that comes out, even from such a small letter and just a few verses. There is so much to take out. Uh, also, a good morning and welcome to those who are newer to attending this class. We are glad that you are here. There's a lot of content that you would have missed in the preparing for where we are at now. For instance, if you look right in your notes, in the bold right at the top of page one, you'll see salutary part of the chiasm, sovereignty part of the covenantal structure, introducing anticipatory structure. What does all of that mean? That's like, if that sounds like Chinese to you, then it's probably because you missed the five weeks of setup going into it. I will, one of these weeks, print out all of the notes from the first five lectures of it, and that'll help soften, help ease you into where we are going. Now, I'm trying to not make this feel like seminary. That's not my, my goal is not to make you feel like you are in a, you're in school. That's not what I, well, it is called Sunday school though, so yeah. <laughs> it's a form of school. But uh, I want it to be educational at a, at a, at an intellectual level, no doubt. But the last thing I'd want to do is just be presenting stuff uh, in complete professor lecture style, and all I'm doing is presenting concepts, and it's just kind of <laughs> concepts to the head, and that's about it. I want all of what we're talking about here to end up being relevant for how we think as Christians, all the way into the way we think about how doctrine applies to life. And that's why, like last week, we'll talk about the transforming of social norms and social institutions. Like, how does doctrine lead us into how we actually practically live? That is my passion with all of this type of stuff. So, introducing chiasms, chiastic structure, it's not about, hey, welcome to seminary 40 years late. It's, this is a relevant way to help us think more deeply about what the author wants to stick out. And if the author wants that to stick out, then how do we apply that into our lives? That's really my heart behind all of this. So I hope it doesn't feel like you are in post-secondary education here. All right, so let's read the letter of Paul to Philemon, verses 1 through 3. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a very standard greeting for Paul. You'll see a lot of those elements in every single one of his letters. He'll introduce himself. He's going to say who's with him. He's going to say who he's writing to. 
he often uses these descriptive words like Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. Like he, it's not just Philemon. He has to then say something about the person that he's directing it to. He does this often. And then he gives the standard grace and peace from the Father and from the Son. This is a pretty standard greeting for Paul. However, probably, I think it was two weeks ago, we pointed out there is something that is unique about this greeting to every single one of Paul's other greetings. Do you remember what it is? What is different about this one than all the others? There's a certain word. Prisoner. Now that's different because how does he usually introduce himself? Servant or apostle. So he's usually, and that's, and that's fine, but usually he'll say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus to the church in Colossae. <coughs> something like that. But this time, he says that he is a prisoner. We're going to get into why he might have done that in a bit. But that is the only thing that's really different about this opening when compared to his other openings. So... Let's see where we are in terms of some of the structures that we brought up before. We talked about the chiasm. This whole letter is written in the form of a chiasm. And just to give you a brief mental image, a chiasm will look something like this. So idea A is going to be in a sentence, but then you'll have idea A repeated at the end of the letter. The same idea brought up here is brought up here. And then it, it does the same thing until you get to the middle of your chiasm and this is your key axis, is whatever is right in the middle. In this particular letter, our key axis is going to be verses uh, 13, uh, 14 and 15 that is. Uh, centering right around verse 14 or whatever my notes said before. But that is the, that's where we're going. But today, we are just at the salutary. We are at A, right at the beginning. And you'll notice that a lot of the themes, or a lot of the words even, brought up right in the beginning, are repeated in verses 23 to 25. So in the opening, he's got all this company of people, and that's exactly what he's doing at the end. He doesn't mention earlier in the book Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, but he brings up a company of people in the beginning. He brings up a company of people at the end. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Grace to you from the Father and Lord Jesus. He repeats ideas, and this happens all the way from the top of the letter towards the middle and the bottom of the letter up towards the middle. That's a chiasm. So we are in the salutary which the French word for that is salut, which is high or by. So I really like that, that word. It's, it, it goes both ways. We are also in the sovereignty part of the covenantal structure. You might remember that our covenantal structure is a five-point literary structure, and this is the opening. Sovereignty, the introducing of the parties, the, the sovereign ones are going to be revealed, so we got to know who we're talking to. So the sovereigns in this letter is, of course, Paul and Philemon. Those are the two main characters, but he's bringing up the other people who are relevant for various reasons. So we are in the sovereignty part of the covenantal structure, and that won't change until verse 4. And now I also want to introduce you to another, uh, I'm going to call it a pseudo-structure because there isn't actually a literary uh, title for this, anticipatory structure. It's really just the literary device of anticipation in general. Anticipation is when an author will 
bring something up maybe in the first 10% of whatever the written work is. He brings up certain ideas, he or she, and then whatever is brought up there, it's not really explained, it's just brought up, but then you start seeing how everything that was brought up in the first like 10% ends up becoming relevant and is explained later on in the book. I recently finished a novel called A Gentleman in Moscow. It's a fantastic novel, one of the best I've ever read in my life. And he's bringing up details in the beginning of the book about a prop gun. And it doesn't really play a relevant part. He's just describing it as part of the scene. And a good author is not going to describe a whole bunch of stuff and make absolutely no use of it. We talked about this before, but if a author is going to say that a character has very sharp eyesight, very sharp eyesight, he is going to make use of that sharp eyesight later on in the book. When they were looking for a clue, he was the only one who spotted it under the rubble and everybody else missed it because he had, good, he had sharp eyesight. A good author will do that. So this author brings up this prop gun in the first 10% of the book and ends up being very relevant later on in the book, but you wouldn't have known that, it was just a detail. This is the type, this is anticipation. And what we're going to see is that Paul has some anticipation even in this letter <coughs> itself. And this is not the only letter that has tremendous anticipation. But to, to show it a bit in, in this letter, we see that um, and by the way, when there is anticipation, it'll be through symbolism, parallelism, imagery, uh, repetition, various ways to do it. In this letter, prisoner for Christ Jesus. He's not coming at it as an apostle. He's not coming at it as a servant. He's coming at it as a prisoner. This theme of prisoner versus free man is, is pr very prevalent in this letter. Of course, because Onesimus is going to be brought up, and he is not a free man. He is a type of prisoner himself. We, more accurately, he's a slave, but he is not a free man. And that also, we can take this in the spiritual sense. There was a time in which Paul was not a free man spiritually. Neither was Philemon, neither was Onesimus. These were not free men, but they were in bondage to their sin. So we're already seeing this theme of prisoner versus free coming up just by the fact that he mentions himself as a prisoner. Brother and sister, Timothy our brother, Aphia our sister. So these sibling type terms, well that becomes extremely relevant later on in the letter. Verse 16, it, when Paul is making his request that Onesimus be accepted, accepted by Philemon in verse 16, take him back no longer as a slave, but more than a slave as a beloved brother. That theme about our siblinghood in the family of God brought up in the beginning, brought up again later on. It's anticipating the content of the letter. Father and son. This one might be a little bit tougher to spot, but what is the relationship between Paul and Timothy? We do know that Paul is a spiritual father to Timothy, and Timothy is his child in the faith. We're going to look at a verse that shows this, but if you ask the question, why does Paul even need to bring up Timothy? Like, honestly, what is the point? Paul's the one writing. Paul's the one making the request. It's a personal letter to another guy. What does Timothy have to do with anything? Well, I think that there's some anticipation going on. He mentions Timothy because everybody knows that 
Paul's spiritual son is Timothy. He's like the next guy after him. He's trained him. He's mentored him. He's stayed with him all these years. And that idea of father-son ends up becoming relevant here as well, down in verse 10. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus. See that idea already? That relationship is coming back. He's anticipating what he's going to be talking about later on in the letter. It's a very, it's a brilliant way to write. Being a soldier in a time of war. Now, that's pretty easy. Where do you see that in our opening? You see it with Archippus, our fellow soldier. He's going to bring up this theme about war. And this is... This is not a mistranslation at all. He is talking about a soldier like, like in the Roman army, like a legionnaire. And he will bring up that idea again, actually later on in the letter. It might not hit you right away because the English doesn't do proper justice to one of the words later on in this book. If you go down to verse 23 of Philemon, it says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. Okay, so you might think that that is going right to the prisoner freeman theme. But that's actually a slight mistranslation of what is happening here. Now, the word that's being used, I checked my Greek New Testament to make sure that this is the way that it's going. The word for when Paul says that he is a prisoner for Christ Jesus is your basic word, like in English, what we would think. If someone who committed a crime and got sent to, to prison, they are a prisoner. But that's not the only way that you can be a prisoner. What's another way that you can become a prisoner rather than just breaking the law? Any ideas? How else do you, when, when else do you take prisoners? Prisoner of war. So when, a, when an army goes into another country and sometimes you'll circle an enemy, they'll put up their hands, they'll surrender, they become your prisoners of war. And that's usually a, an even worse status than being a prisoner by breaking the law in your own country. Uh, but the idea here between Epaphras, my fellow prisoner, the word that he uses is not the same word that he uses to describe himself as a prisoner. The direct translation would be my fellow prisoner of war in Christ Jesus. That doesn't come across perfectly in the English, but that it would be the literal translation of the word. So Epaphras is a fellow prisoner of war in Christ Jesus. He doesn't diminish the terminology of what's going on or the stakes that are that are at play here. This is war between Christ and Satan. Now that's a bit of an un imbalanced fight there. It's a war between us and Satan and we have to be equipped to be able to fight the enemy, to be able to fight sin. So he, he speaks in terms of soldiers and war and battle and this is not the first time Paul does it. He does this multiple times. And then finally, the family gathering of the church is also anticipated. So he brings up at the end of verse 2, and the church in your house. They had house churches at that time, and we will talk about that. But he's bringing up this company of people who make up the house church. He's going to bring up a company of people later on, which are his fellow workers in the Lord. When fellow workers of the Lord are all gathered together in Christ, they're having church so the idea of the family gathering of the church is being anticipated as well. Now, if you look up or just Google anticipatory structure, it's not going to show up in terms of theology and Bible. If you just type in anticipation in Scripture, then you'll probably see it. One of the coolest anticipations that we have in the Bible is the book of Revelation. 
Revelation can confuse a whole lot of people, and for good reason. There's a ton of symbolism and imagery and Old Testament motifs in there. But every, if, if you read very carefully Revelation, he gives the seven letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3. And those seven letters to the churches are actually arranged in such a way that each one of those seven churches anticipates the next part of Revelation by theme. So the very first church, Ephesus, what's talked about in that letter ends up being the content of chapters 4 and 5. And then you just go on, and those seven letters anticipate exactly what the rest of the book is going to be talking about. I would love to teach a whole class in Revelation. It would take years. But um, it's, it, so this is a real thing that is in Scripture, is anticipation. And I think it's clearly here in Philemon as well. Let's introduce or get... Uh, some knowledge about our characters and our setting. We have been talking about context the last couple weeks. Paul and Timothy, our brother, verse 1. Paul, as you know, is writing from his imprisonment. His imprisonment is uh, almost certainly not the imprisonment that he has apparently in Ephesus in the mid-50s, but rather the imprisonment in Rome in 62 A.D., he is joined by his younger co-worker, Timothy, who is not himself enslaved, but he is Paul's faithful companion in life and in ministry. Timothy is very close with Paul. Paul is very close with him. He is serving on his behalf while he is in his house prison. And I say house prison because Paul was given pretty extreme latitude in what, in what he could do as a prisoner. Uh, they didn't actually have him in a traditional jail. He was for a bit, and, the, and he went through various punishments and whatever, but they transferred him to a house in Rome where he was, he was basically under house arrest. He wasn't in a formal prison anymore. So people could come in and out, and they could deliver stuff. And he, that's why he writes, hey, bring the books, bring the, bring the parchments, bring, I want all this stuff, because you, know, you can bring things to me. And he wants visitors and all of that. He can send people out. He can even do church. But uh, it would seem like. So, so he is in Rome. Timothy is a free man. Where does Timothy exactly come from? Let's learn a little bit about him. He is first mentioned in the book of Acts. And Acts chapter 16. We're going to look at a couple things in Acts. But in Acts chapter 16, we're going to see why Timothy is going to join Paul. Right before that, in Acts 15, if you look right before 16, Paul, the heading probably says, Paul and Barnabas separate. Paul is doing a bunch of ministry with Barnabas, and with them they have John called Mark, or sometimes we hyphenate John Mark, is with them, and they have a big disagreement, and so Barnabas is going to split. He's going to take John called Mark with him, and Paul is going to go with, uh, with Silas, and then... 16 verse 1, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews in those places, for they knew that his father was a Greek. And off they went into the cities. So that's the first time we get Timothy introduced, and he ends up being a very important character in Scripture, as we know. 
He's going to join him. Timothy himself is from Lystra. You don't necessarily have to turn there, but I'm going to read in 2 Timothy 1.5. We get the idea of Lystra here. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois. I'm pointing to Lois there. And your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So he, he gets the faith from his grandmother Lois, uh, from Eunice. These are women who are of the Lord, and they are going to teach him the faith. We don't know for sure about his father. Does his father end up believing? He's a Greek, and Timothy's well spoken of. But as a Greek father, he didn't have his son circumcised in the faith, which would have been a big deal back then. So that's why they end up, that's why they do it in the beginning of chapter 16. So we don't know too much about where his father is at, but it seems like the, the discipling in the faith is coming more from Lois and then from Eunice, but mostly Lois. So if you are a grandparent here, even a grandmother, think of the type of impact that you can have in the life of your grandchildren. Even if your son-in-law or your son isn't doing the job of discipling your grandkids, the type of impact that you can have is deep, real, and an honor, really, that the Lord can use you in such a way. So some encouragement for grandparents. Um, his family likely converted back in Acts 14. So in Acts 14, that is when Paul and Barnabas, they're going to these different places. They're at Iconium, but then in verse 8, they head up now at Lystra. There was a man sitting who could not use his feet. They're going to end up doing a miracle for this man. Down to verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. Turns out he wasn't. When he preached, uh, down in 21, when they preached the gospel of that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them. So they did all of this ministry in Lystra, which is where Timothy's family is from. That's probably where or when Timothy and his family convert, is during Paul's ministry there. Now, the, commentar the commentators that I have read have put Timothy at as the middle of his teenage years when Paul is in Lystra. A lot of them put him, so he's maybe 14, 15, maybe 16 years old, and he converts. And then Paul is going to go back through there when he picks up Timothy to join him on his, on his missionary trip. But that's going to be a few years later, is what the commentaries say. The difference in time between Acts 14 to Acts 16 is five to six years. So Timothy would be about 20 years old, maybe 21, by the time he joins Paul in all of his, world, his Mediterranean ministry. He's a very young man, uh, untrained, but spoken well of by the brothers, we know. And another little detail we're going to get is in... First uh, Thessalonians chapter three, verse two. Timothy is going to be mentioned here. I'll read verse one. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. Now, the letter to the Thessalonians was written some 13 years prior to the letter to Philemon, where Timothy's mentioned again. Timothy would have been a man in his young 20s at the time that Thessalonians was written. So, 
think about this. The Thessalonians, they have all these questions, and you know, they, they ask about the day of the Lord. They're so concerned about the day of the Lord. What about the people who are already dead, or fallen asleep is the translation, but what about them? Are they going to be, are they doomed, or are they going to be re- resurrected, or are they going to have new life? They have all these questions, like, Paul, come on, give us the answer. And what does Paul say? I'm going to send you Timothy, my junior. I'm going to send you a 20-year-old, probably still has pimples on his face. That's who I'm going to send to you. Oh, Paul, we want you. Well, I'm sending you Timothy. It's kind of, it makes me think a little bit. Like, say you are driving to a church with the pastor. You really respect the pastor. Let's put ourselves in, in California. You're going to go on a drive from San Diego to L.A., and you want to see John MacArthur preach. You're driving up to Grace to you. It's like, all right, I get to hear John MacArthur in the flesh. And you get there, and it's Phil Johnson preaching. Like, come on. Uh, or in other contexts, it could be you come here for evening service, you think Bruce is going to be preaching, and it's me, and I'm preaching to you. <laughs> you know, we, all, we know what that's like. We can be disappointed for a moment. Maybe the Lord lets us be disappointed for a moment. Oh, I really wish it was John MacArthur. I really wish it. But that's okay. There's an associate there who is obviously trusted to deliver the word of God, and, and it's all fine. We can't be selfish about it. But he's sending... These guys who have all these questions about the faith, here's my 20-year-old associate. Go ahead. He's my guy. And that teaches us a little bit about the mentor-mentee relationship, the the discipling relationship that comes from a spiritual father and a spiritual (laughs) son. I'm going to pick up on that more in a bit. But already at that time, in 1 Thessalonians 3, 2, he is being called God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. Wouldn't you love to have that title applied to you? You are God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. That is some of the best words you can hear um, about the way that you are living faithfully. In 1 Timothy 1 verse 2 is when we get that family language that I was talking about before. It's just uh, right by Thessalonians is Timothy. In 1 Timothy 1 verse 2, I actually observe the greeting here just to show I'm not misleading you. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Timothy is not a literal physical son of Paul's, but he is a spiritual son of Paul's. He converted under Paul's ministry and they have taken on a father-son-like relationship. Likely around the age of 20 at the time. By the time Philemon is written, now we're in the early 60s. We're roughly 13 years after the time of Thessalonians. He's in his early 30s. So the man has had about 10 years with Paul, maybe a bit longer. He, he's more seasoned at that point. So he's, he can send him around and it's not, oh, you're sending us your, your pimple-faced junior. He's given him a more mature man at 30, uh, in his 30s. All right, let's, let's see some other characters brought up in Philemon. We have Philemon, Aphia, and Archippus. I did tell you one of the theories about uh, who Archippus might have been and that there's a theory that the letter is actually directed to Archippus. I'm not convinced of it. I don't think the evidence is there. So if you're reading this, Philemon, Aphia, Archippus, church in your house. It sounds very clear that Philemon and Aphia, if you were writing a letter to a husband or to their, their home, that's how you would address it. Like to Tony and Bridget and Ryan and the grandkids in your house or something. Like that's the order that you would put it in. You, you wouldn't put Ryan first, you would put Tony and Bridget first. So these are 
he's mentioning family members, and these are all people in the house, the church in your house. So it seems clear Philemon and Aphia are husband and wife. Archippus is their son. Archippus is clearly a involved in the ministry. We got that idea from Colossians 4. Tell him to take on, to receive the ministry that has been handed to him. So it could be that Archippus is a is the pastor in training for this church, or maybe he actually already is the minister in their house church. We don't know for sure, but it seems, uh, but the universal historical tradition of this considers it a family unit, Archippus as their son. Evidently, Philemon is a wealthy man. He owned slaves. He had a house suitable for hosting a church. Clearly, this guy had some money. Phile- uh, Onesimus, when he left, Uh, stole from him, so he had goods laying around that were able to be taken. The guy had money. He was also productive spiritually. Notice how he calls Philemon a beloved fellow worker. He's already appealing to the sense that you are productive in the faith. You're not useless in the faith. Oh, there's more anticipation there. He is a beloved fellow worker. He works hard. He's productive He's a believer. He was a convert of Paul's, almost certainly during his ministry in Ephesus over a three-year period. You remember my beautiful map that I had there? Uh, This is just here in case I need it. I gave you good notes this time, by the way. Uh, But he almost certainly converted during Paul's three years in Ephesus. Aphia and Archippus, they convert either at the same time. We don't know exactly. Does Aphia and Archippus go with to Ephesus to hear Paul preach? Do they go with Philemon? Or does Philemon come back and tell him everything that Paul said and, and then his, house, his whole house converts? We don't know for sure. But either way, the household converts. Archippus seems to be a young minister, possibly the pastor of this house church. All right, and the final character is the church in the house itself. Now, that's not a flesh and blood character. It's more of an institution. But I'm introducing it because of the way that they did church. The model of their church is a little bit different than our model right now. That doesn't mean the content is different, but the model was different. So churches were in homes at this time because of the illegal status of Christianity. The Jews, were they pretty quickly stopped having patience for this offshoot Judaism. And when they started calling them Christians, that is an insult. They're not complimenting them. They're not giving them status as equals to the Jews. No, they wanted to shut them down. That's the whole thing with Saul. He's a young captain, probably in his just turned 30, in his young 30s. And he gets Stephen stoned, and he's on his way to Damascus. I'm going to round up some more of them. That was allowed. You were allowed to do that back then. So this is an illegal offshoot of Judaism. They are heavily persecuted. So you try to build your beautiful building and put a Bible community church on it. You're welcoming the torches, the pitchforks, the whatever they had. You're welcoming persecution. But it's not even persecution. Hey, police officers, look what they did to our buildings. Like, yeah, we're going to come and do it next. Like, it's legal persecution that is coming after them. So they had to meet in homes. They didn't really have a choice. Not only that, but everyone in the house was involved in the church. Because they don't have these big buildings with all these different rooms, you don't have a separate kids ministry over here, a separate youth ministry over here, a seniors ministry over here. You're all together, and you have to deal with it. So you could have 15 little kids making noise, and I'm trying to hear the sermon. Well, deal with it is kind of the answer that it would be. Uh, everybody in the house was involved in the church. Men, women, children. And here's the other thing. Hired workers, slaves, and community members. 
if you had a slave at that time, they lived on your property. Now, the type of accommodations you would get would be very dependent on the goodness of the master. That was the double-edged sword of slavery at the time. If you had a Christian as, as the master who had nice living quarters, uh, you could expect to actually have a relatively decent life for a slave. You would have a comfortable life, and some even chose to stay in, their, in that status the rest of their lives. That's a historical fact. But if you did not have a very generous or good man as a master, your life was living hell. It sucked. You got mistreated, again, legally, and they didn't have the protections of the law that the Old Testament has in the slavery relationship. A Hebrew slave had the protections of the law. And what happened every seven years in, when it came to Hebrew slaves back in Exodus? You remember? Let them go. No matter their debt. They've given their six full years. Once it gets to the seventh, they're free. And that has deep symbolic significance, of course. It was not so for a prisoner of war, by the way. There's that, that distinction again between what would happen to if you're a Hebrew imprisoned or if you were a prisoner of war. If the Hebrews, they were supposed to go in and, and take over the land and all that. But if they ever took a prisoner of war, the protection of releasing them every seven years did not apply. It applied to Hebrew slaves. It did not apply to prisoners of war. That's why I said that was like the, kind of the worst status you could get if you were a warrior. And so it's no surprise when it was often, you don't surrender, you, you just fight until, uh, if you're getting surrounded, you just fight your way until you fall. That was often how it went back then. And then community members would join, so probably people down the street would come in just for that day. But your hired workers and your slaves lived with you. They're part of your house. They know your kids. They know your grandparents. They, like you're kind of like a family unit, but that power dynamic is always there. And... So the, that power dynamic had to be respected, but everybody lived in the house. Everyone was involved in the church. If the master converted to Christianity, the slaves were expected to convert to Christianity. And that was just the status of the day. Now, this is relevant because Onesimus is going to be brought up. Onesimus would have been very well known to this church. Onesimus was part of it. He was a slave on that property of Philemon's. He would have been involved in the church. He knew uh, Aphia. He knew Archippus. He was probably ministered to by them. He knew the other slaves there. He knew all the kids. <coughs> he would have been very well known. Paul is putting his neck out a bit for Onesimus. And if he didn't have strong reason to believe that this was going to turn out well, then Paul is making a, a reckless attempt here. Because a slave gone rogue would have been financially detrimental to the household, but it also would have been from a relationship family point, because they were, they, were, they were part of the family. It would have been devastating for someone just to take off, oh, and they stole from you as they went. And now it's like, hey, I want you to take him back. It's like, he offended every single one of us here. He stole, he was part of our church, and he deserted. Like, all these types of things. You can see how human resentment can be what your response would be. Paul is sticking his neck out. Not only that, but Philemon would have the right even to execute Onesimus if he so chose to. He had the power to let him live or die. Now, that's not obviously the status of things today, thank God, but that was the status of things back then. Paul is sticking his neck out for this guy. 
And so he would have been, an, Onesimus would have been a known and regular part of this church, which also means that he probably heard of Paul before. Because Philemon was a convert of Paul's. Philemon converted, his whole household converted through Paul's ministry. You know, we often tell testimonials. For me, I was raised in the charismatic church, and I genuinely believe that the Lord saved me in the charismatic church. My intellectual and my maturation has happened mostly outside of that setting, but still in that setting, I, I heard the gospel, and I believed, and I repented and believed. That still happened, and the Lord can do this. And I tell this testimony, and when you think of me, if you know that, you kind of can think about my beginnings. It's not dissimilar to how Philemon would have ministered then. He probably told of how he and his household converted. So Enesimus has heard that name Paul before. Does he know that Paul is a prisoner in Rome? Maybe, maybe not. I would think he probably did. Philemon probably talked about it before. And so when he steals and he funds his way over to Rome, is he purposely looking for Paul? That he was a good man? That he could be trusted? That he could be looked out for? He's in prison so he needs help? Hey, there's a job for me? There's probably a lot of that stuff going on in Onesimus' mind. Probably had heard about Paul. And so we see how, uh, at a grander scale, God works a lot of things together that we don't have direct knowledge of. And we only start filling in the details after he's already accomplished it. So we see, this is a letter a lot about God's sovereignty, too. And we get to that when we get to the central axis of our chiasm, the sovereignty of God. We'll talk about that in a couple months. Notes and application. Uh, I might not get through all of this, and that's okay. Paul begins this letter from a position of humility. So we talked about the fact that he brings up prisoner as his description, as opposed to apostle or servant. He comes from a position of humility. And this is an important sub-theme of Christian virtue in Christian relationships. We don't play out some some big power dynamic, per se. We come at this from a position of humility in our relationships with one another. And this is going to form some of the persuasive genius of Paul. Can you imagine if he comes at him all arrogantly? I'm in a position high and above and mighty, and you're going to obey me. Actually, he straight up says later on in the book, I, I could, but that's, that's not the way to do this. Paul is going to be persuasive in a way that doesn't have to go to, I'm, I'm the apostle here, do what I say. You know it's what's right, do what I say. He doesn't do that. He comes from a position of humility, and I think that adds to how persuasive his letter ends up being. Can you imagine being Philemon and receiving this letter? And you have Onesimus in front of you, by the way. That's the other thing. The way that it was written was such, and he says that he was sending out Onesimus with Tychicus, so they would just show up, one of the servants or slaves would probably say, hey, someone's coming. Who? F uh, Onesimus. Oh, if you're Philemon, you hear Onesimus is coming. What might you think of doing in that moment? Probably a lesser man would say, yeah, you can shoot him on the spot. But no, he's going to receive him. Onesimus has to hand him the letter before he even knows what's in there and what the request is. He's got the runaway thief right in front of him. And he's going to read this letter. And I wonder what's going through his mind in that moment. But he's going to read it. I wonder how moved he is as he reads the persuasive argument. And Onesimus is, sitting, is standing here. He's, no, my whole life is in this guy's hands right now. Like this is, I'm trusting Paul. I'm trusting God. It's a very tense moment when that letter would have been read. And so he comes at it. He needs to be persuasive. And I think he succeeds in that. All right, so that is... 
a sub-theme of Christian virtue is coming at it from a position of humility makes us more persuasive. Are you more persuaded when somebody comes at you the way Paul does here or when somebody just lays down the law on you? Which one's more persuasive for you? Now, he brings up Timothy. This might be the last thing that I get to talk about here. Timothy's mere mention is going to provide the backdrop of this father-son theme, which is a significant reality in the family of God. And this is similar for mother and daughter. Uh, in the family of God, we are supposed to have spiritual fathers and spiritual sons. Spiritual mothers, spiritual daughters. Uh, this is important. Now, you're... You have a spiritual father in your pastor and in your elders. In a sense, they are supposed to be your spiritual heads. Um, not in the headship of Christ uh, that never usurps that, but they are fathers to us. But ideally, the one who we are most mentored by and raised in the faith by is who? Your parents. You are supposed, your spiritual father should be your earthly father. You should have a man of God in the house who is raising his children to love and fear the Lord. Similarly with daughters, who is supposed to be your primary spiritual mother? It's your physical mother. Like Lois, like Eunice. That's how it's supposed to go. This is generational faithfulness. Faithful mothers, faithful fathers will raise Spirit, both physical and spiritual sons and daughters who will then do it for the next generation and the next generation and the next after that. But this is a very fallen world. There are a lot of people who don't know the faith very well. There are a lot of people who apostatize from the faith. There's a lot of family brokenness. There are a lot of children, and when I say children, I don't just mean babes. Like We're all children to a degree. Uh, there are a lot of children who don't have spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers from their family. They didn't get that, especially if it's the first conversion in a family. But sometimes, this is probably the most sad part, in a supposedly Christian household, you can have a complete failure of the link of passing on the faith to the next generation. And so you have kids who are kind of raised in the church, raised by nominal Christians, but they're spiritual bastards. They don't have mothers and fathers in the faith. This is an epidemic in terms of the, the health of the faith and the health of the church in the West. We have so many children who do not have spiritual mothers and fathers in their own home. And so, this is where the church comes in. The church has to be a place where we are developing these relationships of father, son, mother, daughter. There are probably a lot of people, even at this church, whose parents don't come or don't go to church. Or if their parents aren't here, their grandparents aren't in the faith. Or even if they are, they don't teach them very much. And so that is where we, as not just leaders, not, this is not just elders, deacons, your, your discipleship coordinator, none of that. This is all of us. How we have to disciple each other, bear one another's burdens, speak the truth to one another, encourage one another. I, looked, I preached last week out of Hebrews chapter 3, and it was all about exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, to hold fast to our original confidence firm to the end. When there are children, sons and daughters... And they can be 20, 30 years old who don't have that type of discipling relationship. We need to try to step in and fill the gap. That is how the Lord uses us. I think there are some people, 
even in this church, whose primary ministry should not be go look out and uh, try to find a way to get to Venezuela and do ministry there. It's be a spiritual father here to somebody. Be a spiritual mother to somebody here. Because there are, there are men and women, boys and girls, who do not have that. And that could be, a, that is a very valuable part of ministry and the family of the church. In lieu of faithful fathers and mothers, the church spiritually becomes our father and our mother. I'm going to close by reading 1 Corinthians 4. You should turn there. <coughs> First Corinthians four, fourteen to seventeen. These contain some of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. First Corinthians four fourteen. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Let us imitate Paul. Imitating Paul here is being a spiritual father, being a spiritual mother. Okay, so I'm not going to move on to the next point, which is also very important, but is there, we'll, we'll pick this up next week. Any concluding thoughts or comments? We just have like a minute. Anybody have a comment before we close? John? Yeah, you're absolutely right when you say uh, we can't have a church where we Cannot. And I think that's a, uh, an epidemic problem that we have in Christian society in North America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can take this idea where I'll make the church be the first spiritual parent, and I'll just kind of be the backup, or I'll just be in the background. No, 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 the parents are first, and the church will help and help be along with you, but it's you first. Yeah. We have the same issue in society in general, right, where the government or school board says, parents don't quite know how to do it well. We'll raise the children instead. Just give them to us. You go to work. You give them to us. We'll raise them properly, don't worry. And uh, obviously, I'd rather have my child raised in the church than by government, the state, or society, or school. But, um, but yes, it's become, it's become uh, maybe an exaggeration slightly, but a, a kind of a drop-off system where, well, you know, I, I bring them to church on Sundays, or I bring them all their youth stuff and their Awana. That's, that's, we'll just let them take care of business because I'm a little busy for that. No, you're absolutely correct. That's our job. Yeah. Alright, let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us here, and thank you for the scriptures that we can learn from them even thousands of years after they're written. Would you prepare our hearts now to worship you? Amen.